Hi, Mary. So it's been a little while since we caught up on what we've both been up to, but I know you've been quite busy on a couple of things. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, well, the main thing that's been dominating my life for what feels like the last year, but is actually only a few months, is my house move. So I think I mentioned on this before that I'm joining the London exodus and I'm leaving central London, moving to the suburbs. I felt like I was a real expert on mortgage rates, house prices, etc, etc. I feel like I'm now an expert on legal documents and surveys, which are skills that I didn't really think I needed. But there we go. Cool. Well, I'll bear you in mind if I'm doing a remortgage or something at some point in the future for that. Absolutely. My services are available. But Dan, I think you've got even bigger news. It's been keeping you busy for the last few weeks, at least. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. I'm just back from paternity leave. My wife and I, we welcomed a little boy, Leo, three weeks ago now. So yeah, I've got a little three-week-old baby around the house, which has been lovely. It was nice to have a couple of weeks, just the three of us, but also juggling stuff with work. Now, obviously, grateful that we're still working remotely. That's certainly making life a lot easier. Yeah, it's a roller coaster, but it's been a lot of fun. And what's the biggest thing that's changed in your life as a result, day-to-day life? The, the lack of sleep is a thing. I mean, you sort of, everyone says it, but then it really is, it is a big thing. It's difficult to to know how full on it is with a newborn. I mean, it really is absolutely a full-time thing. Again, everyone says it, but you sort of, I don't know, I discounted what people said for some reason, but it, <laughs> it, it, really, is, it really is a thing. You can't quite believe it till you're in it. Sort of yeah, thing. exactly. I mean, there's a small investment angle to this. I, I just set up a junior ISA and a junior SIP for Leo. Oh, fantastic. And of course, the question is what you're going to invest in. For some reason, I find having those time periods frames the discussion in your mind differently. So obviously the ISA is from when he's 18. So that's call it 20 year thing. The SIP he can access when he's 55. So in the year 2075, those investments are going to be accessed. And I think it frames you into a more longer term way of thinking. I mean, we're always thinking long term in theory, but having that really does make you think, well, hang on, is the FTSE 100 going to be around in 2075? What are we going to be doing? It's um, difficult, but it's interesting. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Well, Dan, we've only gone and done it again, haven't we? Yeah, I know, Mary. It's one of those things, isn't it? We seem to have a habit uh, of recording some of these episodes just before everything changes and then having to hastily go back in and record a little intro again after some big news. Uh, So today's episode is focused, obviously, on the COVID-19 pandemic and the epidemiology around it. Uh, We recorded it last Friday, the 30th of October, uh, before, of course, the big news of the further national lockdown here in England. But I do still think the points that Johnny made are actually totally relevant for the current situation Um, and how things are pan out into the winter and how we look at things all the way through to the spring. Absolutely. And I think it really is testament to how spot on Johnny was that we haven't really had to, you know, re-record the whole session um, or or really cut any of the key points we discussed. So hope you all enjoy and hope you listen before things change again. So one of my personal bugbears this year is it feels like everyone in finance has suddenly turned into an amateur epidemiologist. Talk about things like R numbers and case fatality ratios has been pretty common in investment letters. But delighted to say this week, we are talking to a real life epidemiologist. So we're delighted to welcome Dr. Jonathan Pearson Stuttart. He's been a public health epidemiologist and an academic and is now head of our health analytics team at LCP. Johnny, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dan and Mary. Good to be on the show. 
Morning, Johnny. To kick us off, I thought it'd be helpful if you just give a bit of detail around your background and particularly how you kind of use that background in the work that you do with LCP. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm a clinician by background and been in public health for the last seven years or so. And within that, there's some policy roles where I've previously worked in central government with the then Chief Medical Officer Sally Davis, and then an academic world where I'm up at Imperial College looking at the epidemiology of non-communicable disease, particularly so diabetes and other things like that. And then in my policy world, I'm vice chair of the Royal Society of Public Health, where we work with government and other public health bodies to see what are the big public health issues, how we might address them. And what's really fun for me is that in the academic world, we're terrific at defining the problem, what the problem really is, where is it? And then on the policy world, we're great at saying, this is where we want to be. And what's been really fun for me at LCP is that types of analytic techniques and things that analytic guys across the whole areas that LCP cover have is that we can actually take all of those problems and put them into some actionable insights to change things for tomorrow. And so it's been really exciting these first few months seeing that and when we might go with the health analytics team. And Johnny, just to get us started then, before we get all into um, discussions of epidemiology and viruses and those sort of things, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? So I'm a big animal lover and grew up with dogs and, and quite large dogs. So I've always wanted my own dog. In fact, six months ago, just before lockdown, we did get a dog, but he's a tiny Cavalier King Charles Spaniel called Rocco. And he's become my absolute best friend in the last <laughs> seven months. And he's a very loyal listener and is right by me. He was by me when we started recording. He's not any longer, so I'm clearly bored. <laughs> it's always good to know you've got one listener at least. I think that's a win, isn't it, in these sort of situations? I'm not, I'm not, not a dog person myself, but each to their own. Johnny, I know your sort of background is perhaps in, in other sort of viral areas, but of course, we can't really record today in the current situation and not talk about coronavirus. Now, rather than kind of recapping what's been going on for the last sort of six to nine months, which I think everyone's probably bored to death of all the figures, I wondered if we could kick off by first sort of, I guess, doing a bit of myth busting. When we see these figures presented on the news, how should we be reading these figures? Are there any ways that you think the figures are being misused? Any sort of challenges there in terms of how people are taking in this information? Yeah, I think it's a really, really good point. I think the testing numbers, which have clearly been extremely topical throughout this, both in the role of testing and those numbers that we get daily, are really, really important that they're interpreted in the right way. The first is those numbers that we see every day, clearly the numbers of positive cases from people who've been tested. That doesn't mean that's all the positive people in the country. And so often when we're seeing over the last few days and in certain areas, we'll be seeing a plateauing of those case numbers. And so people think the virus is plateauing. It's not going up anymore. All that simply means is we're just finding the same number of positive people. But instead, every Friday, you get a release from the ONS, which is nine days old, but it's from nine days ago. They do a random survey of the population from more than 100,000 people to then get a truer picture of what the infection numbers are. So, for example, generally, a couple of Fridays ago, for example, testing numbers was high 17, 18, 19,000, yet the ONS numbers were about 35, 36,000. So I think the biggest myth out there is that those numbers we see every day from the government, that that is the true picture. That's just who we're testing. And it's important to see these survey data as well, which gives the more sort of comprehensive picture. Okay, so look to the ONS and not just see what's happening on the news as a first step. Yeah, absolutely. Building on that then, I mean, what are the things that when you hear some of the general discourse in the news and stuff that you're sort of screaming at the TV because you, you find it a bit annoying or it's just being misunderstood or misused? I think there's two main areas here which have been really difficult. 
And I think it's important to start with the basis that this is an impossible situation for any government or any person or any business making decisions, that none of us have gone through this before and so much of it is uncertain. I think the big distinction to make here is, though, that now where we are, say, in October, is not where we were in March. We know an awful lot more. And similarly, that means that what we do now doesn't have to be what we do back then. I think some of the sort of areas that are quite frustrating is that there's been a real short termism about a lot of the discussion. So whether that's that back in March, the belief that this will be over by summer or the belief even in the summer it'll be over by Christmas. But even in the way that we're approaching the discussions around lockdowns at the moment, it's a fairly sort of consensus across the scientific community that come April, life will be very different. Now, nobody's saying there will be a perfect vaccine in April and that we'll all be fine and life will totally be normal. But it's very likely that life will be very different and much closer to normal than it is right now. So instead of us planning for just September, just October, just November, it's about looking from here till April initially, how can we balance the health and the economy for that longer period? And that requires different policy making than if you're just looking for firefighting for the next two or three weeks. Is part of the challenge then around the rhetoric that news reporters are giving, which perhaps is inevitably looking on a short-term basis. They're interviewing someone who's annoyed that the more strict lockdown measures are happening in their area. Do you think the government is actually working on a much longer-term basis and it's really just the misunderstanding of marrying that with the news rhetoric? Or do you think there is a, an issue on the sort of policy side as well? I think there has been an issue in that policy side. From In those first few months, I think it was, as I say, pretty impossible. And there were lots of things I think the government did right testing they got very wrong and PPE in the first instance, but lots that they did right. Yet if we look from sort of August, clearly the eat out to help out was very good for certain areas of the economy, but was inevitable that it was going to be bad for virus transmission. So you have this tension whereby the aim is to get to the beginning of autumn with as few cases as possible. But yet by that measure, which was very important for economic growth in certain areas, clearly didn't do that. And then similarly, if we look at these discussions around local lockdowns in the last few weeks, I think the first thing is this word lockdown has been used far too much. A lockdown is what we did in March. Nothing that we've been doing in the last few months is anywhere near a lockdown. And I think that's quite an important point that's being raised. But the second one is when the discussions with the regional or the metro mayors and things are going forward, Partly, I think the difficulty is at the moment, there's no room for compromise. So I'm all for normally pragmatic compromise. And normally in politics, that's where many of the best solutions are found. But what you can't do is compromise in a pandemic. So a classic example of this is saying pubs should can stay open, but close at 10 o'clock. So that hits the pub's uh, bottom line because they've got fewer hours of trading. But it certainly doesn't really help the virus transmission. And in fact, evidence is showing it might have even made it worse. With some of the measures, with the local and regional measures that were discussed, they've sort of gone for that middle ground where you're better off either closing a sector, but making sure they're fully supported economically because they will be viable in the medium and long term or keeping it open. And I fear at times that we've gone in that middle ground, but the government are moving towards that understanding, I think, over the last few weeks. Did you feel with the measures around the pubs and those sort of things, I mean, in your experience, do you think there is enough or there could possibly ever be enough actual real data and evidence around those things? Because it just seems like the 10 o'clock thing, like you say, it seems a bit of a compromise, seems a bit arbitrary. But is there real evidence that could make any difference? You bring up a really important point about evidence. And so directly on that question, then I'll come back more widely to how evidence is being used or can be used in the pandemic. So the evidence is always going to be very difficult. So your traditional epidemiology, which is observational. So, for example, there was a paper out yesterday, I think, or earlier this week, which saw there's in the areas that had the highest levels of uptake from eat out to take out. They also saw the highest levels of increased infections in those early weeks. And then when that scheme finished, the highest levels of reductions. Now, 
correlation doesn't equal causation always. But of course, we have to be able to look into that. But on the wider evidence issue, I think we're always pushing for evidence-informed policymaking. We say evidence-based, but actually it's up to you as a scientist or as a medic to provide the evidence to whoever the decision maker is. Is that a minister, whoever? And they make that decision informed of the science. They won't always follow it. One of the things that concerned me a, a bit in those early weeks and months of the pandemic is the narrative that we were being led by the science, as though the science was absolutely robust. This was something we'd known about for 50 years. Whereas the truth was, some of the best scientists in the world that were advising the government but to them, too, it was a very new virus and they had very little data and it was all a judgment call. And, and that's why ministers must make those decisions. And I suppose the science wasn't all that dissimilar between certain different countries and the different countries reacted very differently to the science. So I guess backs up that it wasn't fully led by the science because otherwise everyone would have done the same thing. Absolutely. And if we look back what happened in Europe, even in the in the first wave, and then even now, the differences in when different measures have been brought in, haven't been brought in, it's much wider than that as well. I mean. In my imperial college role, we published a couple of weeks ago a paper which was the most comprehensive comparison of excess deaths from 21 high-income countries from the first wave and had huge, huge differences. So overall, we found across those 21 countries that deaths were 23% higher from mid-February through to end of May. But if you look at some countries like New Zealand and some other European countries, actually, there was no increase in excess deaths. And then England and Wales and Spain had 38, 39% increase in deaths. And that's percent above a normal baseline for that time of that year. Exactly. So what we did is basically take the last 10 years of data for that country. And then according to including things like ambient temperature, warmer winters, are better for mortality rates, colder, and so forth, things like that, seasonality, and then provided that baseline, what we would have expected. And they were deaths above what we would have expected in the absence of the pandemic. You've already said correlation is not causation, obviously, but the obvious question on the back of that is why? <laughs> what was it? And, and I guess you've presumably had some thoughts on that, but it's difficult to go from the data to an explanation, I guess. Exactly. So we grouped them really into three, we thought, contributors to those big differences. And that's really important when we look forward to the next six months too, what we can learn from that. And the first group was, what is the health of the public at the beginning of the pandemic? So we know, for example, obesity rates, diabetes rates, that increases the risk of poor outcomes. But similarly, if you have very dense cities with an older population, that's clearly a risk factor. The second aspect is the healthcare and public health structure itself. What's the resilience? Has it got lots of capacity, ITU bed capacity? Do they have a functioning test and trace system? And then the third one's the policy response. And that's where it's really interesting. Those countries that had comprehensive test and trace systems from the outset did really well throughout. And if you remember in the UK, we had to stop our community contact tracing in the 11th of March because we just didn't have capacity. But for those countries that didn't have that, we found, and again, this is with the benefit of hindsight with the data we have now, for those countries that locked down at an earlier stage in their epidemic, when the case numbers were lower than those others, did much better. And the final one, actually, which is really interesting, is around culture and communication. So if you look at places like New Zealand, who've been an exemplar really in this, there's been a really coherent message and strategy from local government to central government, across government, bringing the health professionals with them, learning from the health professionals, and where in some other countries, that's not been there. There's certainly no one single reason for it, but those were some of the contributors. And when we look to the second wave, they'll be important too. And based on evidence that you've seen to date, and I appreciate depending who you ask and how you look at it, I don't know how far through we think we are in the second wave. Do you see policy response changing and adapting in a way that you would like to see based on the work that you've done looking at the first surge, if you like? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's two things. 
with this. So one is that I think there's a slight misunderstanding at times, perhaps discussed around what the second wave may or may not look like. And that if we're having large increase in numbers now, that means it'll be gone by Christmas. Now, I think that that's extremely unlikely. And the Academy of Medical Sciences produced a report that was commissioned by the chief scientific advisor over the summer. And what that had was a reasonable worst case scenario of around 100,000 excess deaths over the winter. What that had was us peaking in December, January, February time in terms of the worst of that. And, and sadly, at the moment, the tracking we're doing in terms of deaths and infections are on that course. And I think there's two reasons for that. Back in August, there were two kind of potential, I mean, many potential scenarios, but two main groups of scenarios for the winter. One was excess deaths are better and the others that they're worse. Back then, the hope around it being better was clearly treatment pathways have improved. Things like dexamethasone, we now know are better for certain patients, but also society's changed. We're wearing masks, people are socially distancing. There are some measures in there. And there was some hope with that. But then as we've seen the infection rates increase and increase and increase, and actually the measures that have been taken, certainly in the UK generally, not stop it in its track yet, then we're looking likely that it'll be actually much worse than the first wave. And when you think normally in winter, that's when the NHS is always at its worst flu, elderly people with respiratory and other diseases. And so already that capacity of a health service to do something extra is lower. So I think at the moment, it's pretty worrying where we are. Clearly, there are so many, nothing's inevitable, and there's so many options still in coming weeks for policy to change that. But at the moment, it's looking rather concerning for the next few months. And how would you respond to those sort of people that say, well, the actual number of daily deaths right now, certainly relative to the number of cases, is a lot lower than what we saw back in March. Is there arguments around the virus having changed or is that purely a statistical thing around the tests and the path we're on? So in terms of the um, the virus itself, I'd largely to defer to virologists be as well placed to advise on that as I would on your investment stand. But so far as we're concerned, from the broader public health, we think it's very similar in what the implications are anyway. But in terms of the statistics on the death side, Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientific Advisor in mid-September, you may recall, gave a projection, not a prediction, but a projection that we might be around 50,000 cases by mid-October if we don't do anything, and that we might reach 200 deaths a day by mid-November. Now, we hit 200 deaths a day in early to mid-October already. On the case numbers, according to the ONS data and other data, we're very close to around that 50,000. And so I think there's two things. One is that there's a delay, as you'd imagine, from number of cases, it's about two, three weeks to enter the deaths, but that we would expect those death rates to be lower than March because of the things we've discussed in terms of those improvements in care pathways and so forth. And the other aspect as well is certainly during the summer and September, a large bulk of the number of cases in the UK were in those younger, fitter age groups. So at that time, we wouldn't expect those to flow through directly to deaths, but we'd expect those to flow through the community to older people and to people with comorbidities, and then to see that increase in deaths in coming weeks and months. I know there was an argument back in sort of, I guess, in the spring that some of the excess deaths were those who would potentially have died in the next 18 months anyway because they had those underlying conditions like you referred to and if many of them died in the first wave then they wouldn't be there to catch it in the second wave. How strong do you think that argument is now or is it really there are plenty of people still very vulnerable to this that actually it doesn't really make much difference? 
what we saw in terms of the patterns of deaths and mortalities is that it was directly parallel. The risk of death from COVID was directly in line with your baseline risk of dying at any age. So it was an exponential increasing with age. And we certainly saw that the bulk of the deaths were in those who were over 65 and over 75. I think that said, so in terms of that idea of whether many of these individuals may have had life expectancies less than a year, two years or three years. I think that's one that only in the fullness of time that we'll see. But certainly a lot of the people who died in that first wave weren't at that stage at all and did have comorbidities. But as you know, patients with vascular disease or diabetes and even cancers now have you know a lot longer life expectancies and much closer to normal life expectancy than they did previously. One of the really interesting things on that was what we found in terms of overall, actually. So there's been a lot, of course, in the literature and in the news about the increased risk of dying from COVID if you're male compared to female. But what we found looking across those 21 countries was of the 206,000 excess deaths, 100,000 were women, 106,000 were men, so pretty even. It isn't borne out by hospital deaths. So what that we think as well, there's a couple of things there. One is that in the early stage of the pandemic, lots of deaths in care homes weren't labelled or noted as COVID-19 if they hadn't had a positive test. But the second aspect is that split between in-hospital deaths and out-of-hospital deaths. Something that's really interesting looking forward and really grim is that the ONS reported a couple of weeks ago that over the last six months, we've had a 75% increase in the number of deaths in women from dementia and Alzheimer's at home rather than in hospitals. If we saw this over a period of years, and this was alongside some initiatives whereby people would rather die at home, comfortable in their own space, then that would be explainable. But over such a short period, that's suggestive that those indirect impacts of the pandemic and the health system really is hitting different areas of the population that perhaps we're not quite capturing up in those COVID statistics specifically. Yeah, that is a really interesting point. I was, I was going to come to that actually on the indirect side, because I guess... Well, you can sort of argue that two ways, I guess. And often on the news, it seems to be argued that it's actually the lockdown measures that could have more of an indirect effect as well, right? So how can you go about picking that apart? I guess the question is, are those indirect deaths a result of COVID or are they a result of the measures put in place against COVID, right? It's a tricky one, isn't it? It's a really tricky one. And so this is absolutely why both the Prime Minister and Chris Whitty have said that all cause excess deaths are the measure to see the total impact of the mortality. So what we want to do with that is then break it down into course specific. So COVID, yes, but others. So for example, what we saw is that in those first few months of the pandemic, whilst COVID deaths were up substantially, there were reductions in other major causes of death. But what you can imagine is those different impacts. So we broadly group them into three. One is direct deaths from COVID-19. The second is indirect because either the health system is saturated or the individual's behaviour has changed that they wouldn't go to hospital when they would ordinarily. But either way, their chronic disease is not being cared for in the same way. And then the third area is actually those wider impacts of the economic environment and social environment on one's health. And so if you look back to the 2008 recession, some work from the Institute for Fiscal Studies found that that level of increase in unemployment then led to around 700,000 more chronic disease conditions in working age people, both physical and mental ill health. And so the impact of morbidity and mortality and those three groupings clearly changes over time and by different people and places. But to go back to your question, Dan, in terms of what's COVID, what's the policy response? The real difficulty with all of this is that deaths from any cause rely on the same service. 
the NHS. That idea of was protect the NHS slogan may have had inadverted, unintentional consequences on individuals not going to hospital when they should have done. The rationale is right in that if the COVID virus is spreading so much that we have so many people going to hospital, that will directly impact that care that's required for someone's heart disease, cancer, dementia, both today and going forward. But I think, as you've alluded to as well, there are all those other aspects that both physical and mental ill health conditions that will be going on because of the lockdown itself. Lockdown back in March is a hugely isolating, lonely and difficult time for an awful lot of people, not to mention the economic impacts on families and so forth. Those three groupings will all have, I think, different impacts on mortality and morbidity over time. But sadly, the key to it all is just to control the virus as well as we can, both so society can go on as normal, but also the health services there when we need it, whatever our condition is. The most effective and important tool to prevent needing a nationwide full lockdown is a comprehensive test and trace system. It can't be overstated how much that's failed. And we've seen promising signs in the last few weeks because they're now giving much more ownership over to local teams who've done this for decades, who are experts and know what they're doing. It was never inevitable that we would need any kind of circuit breaker or lockdowns. It's highly likely, but we hoped that that wouldn't be right until the thick of it in the winter. The idea of a circuit breaker, is that sort of grounded in epidemiological research and modelling? That sounds like that's accepted as it works. It's not just a sort of a political compromise. I think that's right, Dan. So there's two things here. One is that what we do know is that that lockdown, uh, which was a full, pretty comprehensive lockdown back in March, was extremely effective at stopping the virus circulating. It had all sorts of other indirect and negative consequences, but it was very effective. Then now when we're talking about these, what's been termed local lockdowns, they've been pretty ineffective. And I think that's where it's muddied the waters because some of the local lockdowns in past few months Pubs have been open as normal, everything's been as normal, but there's just been some small restrictions perhaps on hosting people in your own home. And they have been pretty ineffective or certainly nowhere near effective compared to the full lockdown. So based on that evidence in March, we do know that works, but it has huge other negative consequences, which is why we want to avoid it. The idea of going local early on is a really smart one. We had much more data to inform that. But then the idea is you'd go really hard on specific areas, very sadly. So it was always the view, I think, that a social lockdown would happen over the winter to try and keep the economy going. Now, there's one big sector which is bang in the middle of where social meets economy, and that's the hospitality sector. I think that's been the really difficult area. And one view might have been that, sadly, you say, we keep that closed the entire time, but we ensure they've got sufficient economic packages because they're an absolute viable business on the other end of this. But we know that will allow the economy elsewhere to keep going. And we sort of tried that middle ground for a while. And I fear that that's been very difficult. The difficult decision has had difficult consequences. And thinking, I guess, much longer term, do you think the only answer really here is a vaccine? Or is there another route that helps us manage this more effectively? Well, I think when you look to how we get to the other side of it, so we're generally learning already to live better with the risk. But I think we'd all agree the last few months hasn't been normal life and it's not what we'd like to see in years to come. Generally, to get to a level of herd immunity requires an effective vaccine. One of the other potential routes that's been discussed in the past has been around how populations could acquire it. But there's been some very recent, which has an all sorts of, sort of falsehoods with it and difficulties with that approach. But what also sort of put paid to that over the last couple of weeks was a study from Imperial that I wasn't involved in that showed actually that the levels of antibodies 
to the virus has reduced by around 25% over the last six months. So it seems as though actually that sort of acquired immunity may not last very long at all. The sort of general view is that and there was a terrific piece out earlier this week from the chair of the vaccine task force for the UK, who said that there's general hope that there will be vaccines around about early next year, initially to the vulnerable and looking at sort of some kind of rollout later in the year from Easter or so onwards. But it's also very likely that they, like all vaccines, will be totally imperfect and some may not work at all and some may work on some people and not others, but that there are lots of other vaccines as well coming down the line. So I think it's one that as more vaccines come on board, we'll know what sort of level of effectiveness do we have across the population and how close to normal life will be after the first set, after the second set, and the third set. But it's difficult to see how there are other ways out towards a totally normal life again without effective vaccines coming over the hill. And of course, treatments is the other way too. It's interesting your point about vaccines. It's obviously a lot more nuanced than is being presented, right? It's not like one clear finish line. Once the vaccine is there and distributed, this whole thing is behind us. Unfortunately, like what you seem to be saying, there's going to be a series of vaccines. Some will be better than others. The first ones will be less good, but will be something. And then through time, we sort of build up a base of them. It's a really difficult, I think, communication strategy for the government generally, but clearly they want to provide hope. What we should all be doing is there is a sunny uplands on the other side of this. Things will get back to normal in one way or the other, and we're all in this. On the flip side of that then has led to this occasional, perhaps raising expectations too much, both on the timeline, but also that a vaccine, the day that that's available, this is all over. Whereas what's more likely, and again, till we see the data, we don't know exactly what this has looked like, but it's much more likely that the first vaccine to be available, no vaccine will be perfect, but it'll help us get there. And then other vaccines come down the hill. But it's entirely possible as well, although the noises are positive, but it is possible that there's no vaccine that works ever. Now, that seems much less likely, both because of the noises from the vaccine trials, but also unlike any other time in history, you have almost every pharmaceutical company, almost every academic who works in this area working on this together in a sort of unprecedented global effort. But it is important that we have that expectation that there's now optimism that a vaccine will be around early next year, initially for the vulnerable groups. That's at hope, but that we don't know how effective it'll mean and then what that means for our day-to-day lives. We'll have to put a link in the show notes to that piece you mentioned for the chair of the vaccine task force. It sounds like that's a good piece for people to read who are interested in getting up to the latest on the vaccines. Absolutely. That's well worth a read. So I guess, Johnny, the talk about vaccines is maybe a very slightly positive note to start wrapping up. We've had a fantastic discussion, covered a whole load of different areas. What would you say is the one thing that you want listeners to take away from this discussion? So I think especially as a not necessarily a health audience, I think what the pandemic has shown us is on the negative side, it's shown how vulnerable our society, day to day lives and economy are to our ill health and that we're all collectively vulnerable to that. But also we saw some fantastic displays, both of altruism, but also of the best of the public and private partnerships during that first wave, whether that was Mercedes creating ventilator type machines with UCL within a matter of days through to the way that many food companies provided food for key workers and stuff. What it's sort of really shown, I think, is that that's an opportunity for us to stop and rethink. And it's a shameless plug for my upcoming book that I've written with the former chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davis, where we sort of explore the drivers of health 
how health has changed and that role of health has changed over the last many decades, but specifically how the links between we're living longer, but living many more years in ill health. And actually that ill health clusters with unemployment and educational opportunities and the reverse is true too. So we sort of conclude by saying that health is our most untapped opportunity for prosperity, for happiness and social mobility in the 21st century. And that we feel all of society, whether that's civil society, private sector, governments just need to value health differently as we go forward. Well, that is a, a lovely positive note to contrast slightly with some of the uh, some more downbeat assessment in the rest of the show. But the book sounds great. And that's on pre-order right now, right? So we will put a link to that in the show notes, people. That's great. Absolutely. So it's called Whose Health Is It Anyway? And it's out on the 19th of November. We always ask our guests what the most underappreciated thing is they think about investing. I guess for you, it probably should be more the question, what's the most underappreciated thing about health generally? When I worked for Sally back in 2018, I edited her annual report, which looking at health in 2040 called Better Health Within Reach, another optimistic one for you. The number one recommendation from that report was to the cabinet secretary to develop a new health index for England, uh, England in the first instance, then all devolved nations, which the cabinet secretary commissioned to the ONS. I remain on the advisory group and that's being launched in December. And the key reason for that was because we realized that far from ill health, being a drain on society, actually that health itself is an asset, whether that's to individuals, community, companies, and so forth. The idea of the health index is that it values the stock of health that a nation has, not just those health outcomes, but all of those drivers that we can say five, 10 years, 20 years, what that means for our prosperity. Is that almost like an alternative GDP sort of thing? So you could almost make decisions based on that? That's absolutely right, Dan. So the idea is that it should sit alongside GDP. Good health is our most untapped opportunity, both for prosperity. And, and that's both from a company perspective, too, thinking of the health, both physical and mental health of a workforce, clearly has massive impacts on productivity, but also for that culture as well. And that we perhaps, if we come out of this pandemic valuing health differently, then I think we'll all be in a better place. And do you have any recommendations? You've already referenced a few studies and things specifically on COVID, which we can link to. Any more general recommendations for our listeners on things to watch or read or, or listen to? Yes, absolutely. So I've actually been enjoying the Science in Action podcast on the BBC World Service, which has been throughout the pandemic a really balanced view both of the evidence and what we're seeing across the world with regards to the pandemic. And it's been really, really interesting listen throughout. Great. Cool. We'll stick a link into that. Well, Johnny, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. No, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mary. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Johnny. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.